Well, beloved listener, when it comes to climate change, what happens in the Antarctic will affect us all, and this is a particularly true of one glacier, the Thwaites Glacier. Now, back in 2019, writer Elizabeth Rush set out on a 54-day scientific mission above the good ship Nathaniel B. Palmer to uh, study Antarctic's uh, most important and least understood glacier. And in a new book, she documents both her physical journey south and her inner journey into whether to become a mum in this warming world. Her book is called The Quickening, Creation and Community at the Ends of the Earth. Elizabeth, a warm welcome to our little wireless program. Could you start by telling us about the Thwaites Glacier? Why is it so important? Well, Thwaites Glacier is the widest glacier in the world. It's roughly the size of Great Britain. And it's also one of the most rapidly deteriorating. And the weights alone contains enough ice to raise global sea levels two feet. But probably even more important than that is that we suspect it acts as a kind of cork to the West Antarctic ice sheet. And if we lose the weights, we could destabilize a lot of the ice sitting on top of the Western portion of Antarctica, which could cause global sea levels to rise 10 feet or more. Little wonder it's called the Doomsday Glacier. I was wondering about that. I mean, here in the U.S. it has this horrible nickname. I don't know if that's traveled to Australia. But we, most people here know it as the Doomsday Glacier. Why is this all-important glacier so understudied in the past? Mm. Well... The Waits is in this extremely remote corner of Antarctica. So I think it's really interesting. I mean, Antarctica in general is not highly understood by us humans. I think it's really important to remember that the first person to see Antarctica saw it just over 200 years ago. So all of our firsthand accounts of this entire continent of ice have happened in the last two centuries. The first person to stand atop the weights did so um, as a part of an extensive international mission to learn as much as humanly possible about Antarctica in the middle of the 20th century. So, you know, the questions that were being asked then were pretty rudimentary. How deep is the ice on top of Antarctica? Um how, you know, how far down is the ground beneath the ice? And they discovered, again, you know, just like 50 years ago that, well, actually it's probably 70 years ago now, it was in the 1950s, that the ice in West Antarctica and Thwaites in particular is a lot, lot deeper um, than they expected. And so that means that it it's this massive miles thick um, slab of ice that rests atop the land in West Antarctica. Our mission was the first to reach the calving edge of the Waits Glacier, so the place where the ice is discharged into the sea. We're the first people in Earth's history to ever make it there. So a lot of what we think about um, when we make these predictions about how the Waits will behave in the future are really just that, they're predictions. We don't have much observational data. 
I can well understand why you wanted to go on the expedition, but how did it come about, Elizabeth? Oh, gosh. Um, I had been actually writing about sea level rise and its early impact on coastal communities in the United States for about half a decade before I even learned about Thwaites. And when I learned about Thwaites, I was fascinated by the possibility that this glacier so far away from us could be playing a really fundamental role in the shape of our coastline and our coastal communities. So I decided to apply to a program um, run through the U.S. government, the Antarctic Artists and Writers Program. They send like one artist and one writer to the ice every year. And I put together a 60-page application um, sent it off, you know, on a wish and a prayer that they might <laughs> choose me. And they did. I was really lucky. Now, tell us a bit about the uh, the Palmer and its crew. I understand there were scientists from across a few different fields. Oh, yeah. Our icebreaker, which, you know, to put it in context, is about the length of a football pitch was home for 57 people during this, you know, two and a half month long mission. And the scientists on board came from Sweden. They came from the United States, from Brazil, from Great Britain. But also our crew was a really international mix. We had a cook from Jamaica. Most of the able-bodied sailors on board came from the Philippines. So it was truly an international mission. Of the 57 people you uh, you sailed with, 16 were women, and uh, you point out that would have been unheard of just, just a few decades ago. Yeah, one of my favourite uh, pieces of, I don't know if I should even say favourite, one of the most telling pieces of information I gathered as I was preparing for this cruise and kind of looking at the history of women in Antarctica was a New York Times article from 1969 where the author writes about the first um, women to really deploy to the South Pole in a U.S.-run program, and he calls it an incursion of females into the largest male sanctuary remaining on the planet. So I think that tells you a lot about how in this really short period of time that humans were have been interacting with Antarctica, women were almost always basically forbidden from the ice. So it's only in the last couple of decades that we see an uptick of women making it, you know, past well, you the found, Antarctic circle. You found that almost everything to do with the Antarctic has historically been very masculine, hyper-masculine, including the narratives about it. Tell us about, well, the likes of uh, Scott and Amundsen. You know, these Scott, Admonson, uh, Shackleton, these are the stories that get replayed again and again and again when we talk about Antarctica. And and I, I mean that literally. Like I pulled, you know, tons of books out of the library. And within a couple months of delving into this research, I was like growing bored because they all just told the same story again and again. And a lot of times the language that's used in that story about sort of male conquest at at the south pole or in antarctica has 
a kind of like patina of sexual dominance. So Antarctica's broad white bosom draws men towards it or her impenetrable interior is the ultimate prize. So actually my boredom gave way to a little bit of rage as well as I read. I was like, wow, (laughs) women uh, at so many levels have been excluded from this history. They certainly didn't write most of it. Elizabeth, you also noticed that uh, the exploration tended to divide people along racial lines. How so? Well, one thing that we see is that often the labor of the support staff on these missions goes unrecognized in the stories that we tell about Antarctica. So if I think about, you know, if I think about our crews in particular, the cooks were the only two black men on board. Um, the the able-bodied sailors from the Philippines here in the U.S., we'd call them people of color. They're, this labor is just rarely recognized in the stories that we tell about Antarctica, and yet it's central to the success of a mission, to the survival of the folks on board. So there's also a sense in which those histories are getting written out of the official records. And I wanted to write a book that really recognized that labor because it's so important. The program is LNL and my guest is Elizabeth Rush. And we're talking about her book, The Quickening, Creation and Community at the Ends of the Earth. And there's, a, of course, an interesting pun buried in the title. Before we move on, can you tell us about your title, The Quickening? What does it refer to? Yeah, the quickening in this book means sort of two things. I, you know, we haven't exactly spoken about it yet, but as I went on this mission, I was also contemplating becoming a mother. In order to go to Antarctica, I actually had to delay my plans to attempt to become pregnant for one full year because pregnant people aren't allowed to go to the ice in these U.S. government sponsored missions. Um, And so I carried this desire to have a baby on board the boat with me. And I was really curious, but also quite nervous about what watching glacial collapse up front, up close might do to that desire. But I was also curious about what that desire might do to the ice, how it might help me see Antarctica differently. So the quickening uh, really is a a pun, uh, a bit of wordplay, because quickening in obstetric circles means the moment that a person can first feel their baby's movement. Before we had ultrasounds, uh, you know, that first kick, that first flutter of activity in the uterus is kind of how you know that your baby's doing okay. It's when you recognize the life growing inside of you. We call that the moment when the pregnancy quickens. And quickening also, you know, is about the acceleration of Antarctica's glaciers. Uh, Glaciers naturally dump ice into the ocean. It's part of the life cycle of a glacier. What's 
unprecedented is the rate at which they're depositing that ice into the ocean right now. So they're accelerating, they're quickening as well. You know, when I talked about a pun in the title, I was actually referring to the ends of the earth. But, uh, (laughs) you know, they're, they're both absolutely applicable. Now, at this time, yes, you were grappling with whether or not to to have children, and you write, should I have a child? Their greenhouse gas emissions will cause roughly 50 square metres of sea ice to melt every year that they are alive. Now, how did your thinking about whether or not to become a mother change during the course of the journey? Well, it was actually when I came back, I encountered um, a piece of reporting by a woman named Mian Christ in the London Review of Books called Is It Still Okay to Have a Child? And she included a piece of information that was really fundamental to reshaping how I was feeling. She wrote about how um, BP, British Petroleum, is responsible for popularizing the carbon footprint um, and carbon footprint calculus. So, you know, that thing that we all do, should I get a Prius or a Jetta? Should I go meatless on Mondays? The way we calculate our individual impact on the planet, that was actually, and it is and continues to be a strategy of the fossil fuel industry to um, make individuals feel culpable at this really personal level for the climate crisis. And I think it blame shifts away from large corporations onto um, single actors. And in doing that, it kind of discourages us from getting together with one another and asking for large scale change. So I think when I write, you know, my child will cause X amount of sea ice to deteriorate every year. The book eventually moves beyond that logic and says that logic is really damaging in lots of ways that we don't often account for. I like I like the the following sentence of yours. Having children can be an act of radical faith that life will continue despite all that assails it. Thank you. Yeah, you know, just even listening to that sentence, I think about how, you know, indigenous groups in Australia, in the US have been menaced by outside forces for centuries. And there's a sense in which when you kind of take a broader view of human history, you can certainly track this sense of child making as an act of faith and and hope and resilience in the face of what feels like really insurmountable odds. So I think part of what feels new about this moment is that there's more and more and more of us facing that existential question. It's not just siloed in indigenous communities or communities of color. It's interesting that I had the same dilemma many, many years ago during the Cold War, was it right to bring a child into a world on the brink of nuclear war where the doomsday clock was ticking? But Mm. one of the things you learnt is that uh, research down south never goes smoothly, does it? You had all sorts of vicissitudes. 
Oh, goodness. Yeah. I mean, we had some kind of saying on the boat. I mean, we had a literal mandate on the boat that we weren't really allowed to plan more than two days in advance. Um, because for sure, even what you plan to have happen in the next 12 hours, some of it will get off track at some point. And you always have to, you know, recalibrate, adjust. So yeah, nothing goes according to plan in Antarctica. And I think there is something that I found that there was a great sort of lesson in there about being unattached to outcomes and continuing to show up for the work, regardless of whether or not it's running as smoothly as you'd like. Elizabeth, you also confessed to making a mistake that caused some uh, Mm. precious information to be lost. Yes, you know, so you're talking about this moment that would happen a couple days after we finally arrive at Thwaites. And, you know, we had been at sea for almost a month before we got to this glacier. And all the scientists on board are like, you know, really excited to start getting the data that we came for. And in a kind of enthusiastic wave, I was helping the scientists, you know, with some really basic sampling, extracting and cataloging mud that we cat- that we pulled up from the seafloor right in front of the weights. And I don't know, not 48 hours after our arrival, I dropped a gig, you know, a two foot long tube of it on the floor as I was trying to move it from one place to another. And honestly, it's the most ashamed I've ever been in my adult life. But so much was discovered. Tell us about some of the discoveries, Elizabeth. Well, gosh. I'm going to try to talk about maybe two of the biggest discoveries that we made. Probably our the most ambitious goal of our mission was to send a submarine beneath the ice shelf. And we were successful in doing that. And I think it's important to remember that we know less about what happens underneath Antarctica's uh, ice shelves than we do know about what's happening on the moon. So just for a little sort of visual context, uh, these glaciers in Antarctica are kind of giant flowing rivers of ice that work their way to the sea. And in front of them are these gigantic, you know, 500, 800 feet thick ice shelves that float out into the ocean And they sit at the front of the glacier and they kind of give it a like a buttressing effect. They slow down the glacier's flow. Um, So we were able to send a submarine underneath the weight's ice shelf. And we learned a couple really important things. We learned, for instance, that the water circulating beneath the weights is a little bit colder than we expected. And Honestly, a lot of the news media kind of got that finding wrong. They're like, oh, the water under the weights is colder. That's great news. And it's not actually great news because the weights is still flowing, um, disintegrating at the same rate. And it means that colder water than we expected is causing this rapid deterioration that we're witnessing. So that just means that the glacier is probably a bit more physically vulnerable than we understood previously. Um, that the way the ice is cracking is 
these big cracks on the underside of the glacier are appearing with less heat. The other big finding that we found is that from that same submarine that we sent under the ice shelf, it was able to record a bunch of tractor treads, what looked like tractor treads on the seafloor. Hundreds and hundreds of these tractor treads are littered on the seafloor underneath the ice shelf. And one of the scientists on board our cruise was able to connect those tractor treads to a series of tidal cycles sometime in the last 100, 150 years. And they are kind of evidence, a footprint of the glacier's grounding line stepping back. What that tells us is that in recent history, the weights has moved two to three times faster than we've ever observed. Um, so we really only have vis visual observations of the weights beginning in the 1950s. And so we know that now when we're calculating what's the upper threshold, what's the fastest the weights could possibly move? Well, now we have to put that number two to three times higher than we did previously. Of course, none of the discoveries bode well for the Thwaites or us. You also witnessed uh, Thwaites changing dramatically before your eyes, didn't you? You were, there was a carving event, wasn't there? Yeah, that was probably one of the most surreal experiences of my life. So like I said, you know, we, we traveled for a month to get to Thwaites and then we got there and all of a sudden we were in, you know, scientific data gathering overdrive. And we worked for almost a week straight, you know, 24 hours a day, trying to get as much information as possible on board. And I can remember going up to the top deck. I want to say it was like our sixth morning at the weights. And it was this beautiful day. And there were hundreds of icebergs in the ocean. And I just took all these photographs. I was like, gosh, this is like, you know, the most stunning day of the cruise so far. And I genuinely didn't think too much of it. And I went back into the boat, back inside. I did a couple interviews. I started transcribing them. And around lunchtime, I saw the chief scientist on board sort of clicking back and forth between two images on his computer. And in one of them, they're aerial images gathered from a satellite. And in one of them, the area where we are and the weights looks very solid. It's kind of like a rampart running along uh, the western edge of this unnamed bay where we were sailing. And in the next one, it looks like a god has taken a hammer to a windshield and just smashed it into hundreds of pieces. And it didn't take me long to realize that, you know, that second image was what I had seen outside that morning and that the weights had a huge chunk of the weights had collapsed right in front of us. But none of us really knew that that was what was happening until we got these aerial images on board. And it just goes to show you, you know, with, with no human experience in this part of the world, it's really hard to perceive these changes, even when they're happening on a really large scale. And I think listeners can probably understand what that feels like. Climate change is hard to perceive in our bodies. We know it's happening, 
but we don't have a lot of experience with shifts like these. So the things that we're used to relying on our sight, our sense of smell, um, those aren't necessarily the best barometers right now. And, and that's a that's a surreal, strange experience. Elizabeth, thank you very much for that. It's been a privilege to talk to you. My guest is Elizabeth Rush, author of The Quickening, Creating and Community at the Ends of the Earth, and it's uh, published by uh, Milkweed Editions. Thanks, Elizabeth. Thank you so much for having me. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.